Hello everyone, welcome to JCB Art Studio. My name is Joanna and I am the author of The Unraveling in Dealer's Child. And hopefully in 2023, I'll have Spy Girls coming out. I want to give a shout out to Creative Edge Publicity for their assistance and making this podcast happen. Today, I have award-winning science fiction and fantasy author, Edward Willett, joining me on the podcast. Ed has written over 60 science fiction, fantasy, and nonfiction books for readers of all ages. His science fiction fantasy novels are published through Daw Books in New York. And under the pseudonym Lee Arthur Chain, he is the author of the steampunk fantasy novel. Ed, I'm going to have to ask you, how would you pronounce that? Magebane. Magebane. And if we have time at the end, I want to ask you about steampunk. Okay. And as E.C. Blake, he wrote The Mask of Igrima. Close enough. Close <laughs> enough. Okay. It's a fantasy trilogy. Masks, Shadows, and Faces. His novel, Masiguro, won the 2009 Aurora Award, which honors Canadian science fiction and fantasy. His novel, Terra Ensegura, was a 2010 Aurora finalist, and his YA novel, Star Song, was a 2022 finalist. He has also won a Saskatchewan Book Award for his YA fantasy, Spirit Singer, and he's been shortlisted multiple times. Ed, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Good. So you have just come off of When When Words Collide. You were on many panels. I saw you on many panels. Um, How are you doing? Or are you still just going, going, going? Any, Any time for a break at all? Uh, there's always things to do. So that that was that was nice. That was a break, actually, doing some of that and then sits back to uh, editing and publishing and writing and all that stuff I do all the time. Okay, it was a great it was great to be uh, to be one of the guests of honor. I, I felt like it was like uh, one of these things is not quite the other because there were three New York Times bestselling authors and me. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but, uh, it was a lot of fun. Good. Well, I find now. I've just, I retired in January, 2022. So I'm writing like what you would say full-time. And it's almost like I'm, I don't want to say I'm working harder, but I feel like I'm working harder on my own stuff than when I had, oh, this is going to sound so bad. I worked hard as a government employee at the legislative council. But there were times I remember when going to work was almost like a break. And now I feel like I'm not having that break. Does that make any sense? Yeah. When you're self-employed, which I have been now for coming up on 30 years, um, you're, you work all the time one way or the other, either you're, you know, I work on weekends because I'm at my computer and, you know, something needs doing and I've got the time to put her away at it. On the other hand, maybe I don't work on a day when I'm doing something else, but it always feels you're never, you know, weekends and like this is a long weekend coming up. And my wife had to remind me of that because those things just barely register on me anymore. The only way I know it's a long weekend is because she's off work. Yeah, Yeah, that's so true. Okay. Now, your website is packed 
with really cool information. Uh, if we can just talk about that for a little bit. Um, on there, I saw you have a performing resume. You've been in numerous operas, theater productions, television productions. And when I was looking at all this, I thought, he's a storyteller. Like, do you feel you're a storyteller in all its forms? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of how it all started, right? I, I started as a reader, and then I wanted to tell my own stories, and I started very, very early. The first complete short story I can remember writing, although I know I, you know, wrote things before that, was uh, called, I was 11 years old, and it was, we were just doing something on a rainy day, my friend and I, in those pre-internet days, <laughs> and pre, and we didn't even, we only got two channels, and one of them was fuzzy on our TV, too, um, so I, we wrote short stories. I don't know if he even finished his, but I wrote a complete short story, and it was called Castor Glass Hypership Test Pilot. So my course was set very early on, wow. and uh, I've been telling stories one way or the other ever since. I wrote three novels in high school, and then um, I went into journalism, so I was telling hopefully true stories in <laughs> journalism. Uh, and yeah, that's just what I do. I tell stories. And yeah, the acting and performing side of things, it, there's a strong connection there because uh, when you are writing, you are trying to put yourself into the head of your characters and believe, make them into believable human beings. And when you're acting, you're doing exactly the same thing. You typically have just one character then that you have to put yourself into the head of, but it's still that same kind of, of process of trying to trying to think like another person yeah. and making that believable to other people who are experiencing the story that you're trying to tell. So I think there is a very strong uh, correlation between those two things. Good. Okay. 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 So we're going to talk about your novel. That's good. <laughs> the Tangled Stars. It's being released. It'll be October. It's, you know, October it's being released. So can you give our listeners a little teaser or summary of what The Tangled Stars is about? Uh, the Tangled Stars is set in, uh, it's it's a... It's a humorous far future space opera. Um, it takes place in outer space, largely. Uh, and it's in a future in which uh, it's actually post-interstellar civilization. Earth had, uh, through what are called masts, which think of them as wormholes, uh, had, uh, had managed to move out into the stars. But that whole network collapsed cataclysmically. And so Earth is cut off. And there's still... Uh, Settled settlements all through the solar system. If you think of uh, the expanse, if you've seen that TV series, it's kind of that kind of a setup where there are settlements on asteroids and moons and all the planets and all that sort of thing. And my main character is uh, uh, he's a scavenger and not entirely uh, within the law most of the time. Uh, a bit of a thief and a con man and all those sorts of things. But at the moment, he's working as a salvager and he's trying to salvage this this chunk of what used to be the station at the Earth terminus of uh, of this network. And uh, while he's out there chasing that, uh, something appears and he realizes that potentially the network is opening again, and he's the only one who knows it. And he has reasons to get out of the solar system. So he decides, he, and he knows there's only one ship that can take him out of there. So he decides he has to steal that ship from a museum on Earth, and he enlists people along the way to help him do that. And I should mention that he is accompanied through all of this by his first mate, who is a genetically modified uh, AI uplifted talking cat. <laughs> that is awesome. <laughs> okay, that is awesome. When I was, oh, well, yeah, we're going to get into Theobald. We're going to get into him. Yeah. 
Um, okay, so yeah, because you do, you've got this partnership between them, between Cooper, Coop, and Theobald. And what I like is in the book, you have Theobald's private log. <laughs> and what is written in there just cracks you up. Like it just, you know, because it's all from a cat's point of view. Right? Yeah, those were great fun to write. And I don't know when I decided there was going to be one at the head of each chapter. <clears throat> but uh, that started very early on when I started writing it. I think I wrote one on the first chapter. And I thought, well, that's cool. I'm going to do that on every chapter. And and I did. Yeah. And each one ties into what happens, happens in the chapter. Yeah. And uh, I've known cats my whole life. I've always not always had a cat. I mean, there was a long period of time when I didn't own one because it, uh, I just didn't. But we have one now and have had for 10 years. Yeah. You turned 10 last week. In fact. Oh, wow. Um, and so I love cats, and I think I understand them pretty well. And if you had a talking cat with oh, God. intelligence to reflect on things, and yet at the same time, he's still a cat. And the thing about Tybalt is he's really an artificial intelligence, but he's on this feline brain substrate, as I call it. And so he's also a cat. So he's a, he's a super intelligent AI. He has access to all of history and pop culture. He makes pop culture references nobody else on the ship knows because he's plugged. He's he can make pop culture references that come back to our age, which is also fun. Yeah. Uh, but nobody gets them because it's so far in the future. Yeah. Um, so if you had a cat like that, he would probably be a smart aleck. Yeah. And he would be very self centered, as cats tend to be, and very independent and. And yet also attached to his people. And I think that all comes across in Tybalt's comments at the head of each chapter. And I just realized I totally massacred his poor name. So well, it's actually it was originally Tybalt, as in Romeo and Juliet's Tybalt, because okay. Tybalt is the Prince of Cats. And there is a reference in Romeo and Juliet. He's called Prince of Cats or something like that. And yeah. it goes back to a French uh, folktale, which yeah. was already current at the time of Shakespeare. Um but when I originally called him Tybalt, uh, my editor at DOS said, uh, pointed out that there is another, I don't know which one it is, but there is another quite popular series published by DAW whose main character is named Tybalt. And they thought perhaps I shouldn't confuse those two things. So I went to a slightly more French spelling and he's Tybalt, T-H-I-B-A-U-L-D. But it's the same name and it's it basically means it's the name for the Prince of Cats. Yeah. So then how did you come up with that uh, that idea of like that partnership? between Coop and Tybalt? It came very early on. I, I I, had an idea of what I wanted to do in this kind of, and I'd kind of touched on it in a short story I'd written. Not, and In fact, I have written a short story set in this universe, which is in the anthology I kickstarted, Shapers of Worlds Volume 2, which is a, it takes place 10 years before okay. the events of the book and kind of tells the story of how Tybalt is rescued by Coop and Lisa, the two main characters, and how he that all comes together. Uh, there are elements of it in the in the novel as well, but I pulled that out and turned it into a short story. Uh, but I'd written another short story, which was set in a kind of world where there had been these connections to an interstellar civilization, and they had collapsed, and and nobody knew why exactly, and what would happen if it opened up again. So that idea had come along a long time ago, and I just think that's an interesting idea that uh, that idea of you know we used to have interstellar civilization, and it fell apart what happens if it comes back up and the idea was that having all these worlds that were cut off from earth for a long time uh, as a framework for telling multiple stories it means that every one of these worlds that's been cut off for a long time could have evolved in different ways you can have oh, wow. all kinds of different worlds yeah. that adventures could take place in yeah. so that was kind of the overarching i was trying to come up with a framework for multiple stories in the hopes that this might become a series 
Yeah. Uh, the cat. I like cats, and I mm-hmm. wanted my main character to have an interesting companion. And I don't know. I I I threw the cat in there almost from the very beginning. He was just there in my head. I think well, waiting to pounce. <laughs> well, I just I think of that opening scene too when they're 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 going to that. Well, I don't want to give it away. Where they're going to that sphere, right? And like how you write it, you can feel like when they're being thrust back or thrust forward. It's cool. It's really cool. Right? Good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You may be about the first person other than my editor who's read it. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, because and I'm gonna yeah. Okay, so here's the thing. I'm being totally honest, and I don't read a lot of science fiction, right? That just I that's it's just me. Forgive me. I'm I'm sure I'll be booed and hissed by all your followers and fans. Okay. Many people don't read science fiction. It is a niche genre compared to the you know the more popular ones for sure. But it's interesting because like I'm gonna uh age myself here. Thomas Dolby came out with that song. I remember I, I think may have may have been from the 80s, she blinded me with science. Mm-hmm. And you did not blind me with science okay oh, like I, I never felt lost. i was making it all up so. <laughs> <laughs> i wasn't doing real science well the thing is i never felt lost like and i never felt like i didn't understand anything you know with um with uh too much do i dare say tech sort of stuff techno babble is what it's usually yeah. okay like i i knew like Like on Star Trek, when they start talking about things that are happening in the ship, it's called Technobabble. Okay, because like Tibble has his own special sort of bed, right? Like they all, but you understand, you understand, okay? So, you know, Coop is trying to salvage this space station and he runs into a problem. You you, you know, you've, you've been mentioning it. So that opening scene, he has a problem. So would you say for new authors out there that when you're starting, start with your, your main character having a problem, like just to get that that reader in? I think ultimately that's the overarching yeah. structure of any story. Yeah. How quickly you get into it depends on the pace of the particular story you're trying to tell and the kind of story you're trying to tell. You could take more time to set up the character, but I think very early on, you have to establish what that character wants and why he can't get it, because that's going to be the focus of the story is how this character is trying to accomplish something. There's uh, one of the workshops I did at Windwards Collide was created by James Van Pelt, who's a a well-known science fiction, particularly known for his short fiction. Mm -hmm. And he also taught high school uh, English for many, many years. And he came up with an exercise called the seven sentence short story, which is a plotting exercise. And that's actually how it begins. The very first sentence is introduce your main character, the problem he's trying to solve, and his first action to try to to solve that problem. Cool. Then in the second one, it's like the first action puts actually failed and put him even further away. So yes, and so it goes kind of up and down until you get to the climax at the end of the seven sentences. But that is very basic plotting. And, uh, and if you're going to get your readers interested in the story you have to make the character interesting right off the front and whatever it is he or she is trying to accomplish needs to be established pretty early on and you need to want them to be able to accomplish it so all those things kind of work together and i think i I guess i did that in the first (laughs) in the first chapter (laughs) well 
I was my oldest daughter and I, she's, she's, we've been recommending books back and forth. And I'm, I'm kind of going off on a little bit of a tangent here, but it, it's connected. She was telling me, she said, mom, I was reading, I'm reading a book. She goes, I never thought I'd read a book in this genre. She goes, it's fantasy, kind of like Game of Thrones. And she goes, and at first it was hard to get into. She goes, but I figured I'd read the first hundred pages. And she goes, and then it was like page 89. She goes, whoa, all this stuff happened. And she goes, and, and she's now hooked. Okay. And as she's saying this, I thought, well, that's not Ed's book. <laughs> that's what I'm listening to her. And I said, Ed's, you know, right away, you know, from page one, Cooper has a problem, right? Yeah, I would be reluctant to wait 89 pages for things to take off because not everybody's going to read the first 100 pages. What if you only read the first 50 pages and nothing has happened yet? That's it. Uh, so I don't know. I would think personally, yeah. and my personal approach is usually to get things rolling much faster than that. Yeah. If you're writing a huge multi-book fantasy epic and you know you have faithful readers, like perhaps you've already built a readership who will stick with you because they know that things are going to uh, take off at some point and they're willing and they're interested in the characters, maybe because they know your previous books and they already know the characters, all those sorts of things could mitigate it. But for a, a first novel or your first book in a series, I would think you'd want to kick things off a little quicker than the 89 pages in yeah <laughs> personally yeah, yeah I, and i agree because i know once oh about six years ago a book that was considered humorous was recommended to me and i remember people telling me oh it, it, yeah this is a funny book this is a funny book and i'm reading it and then someone said, yeah, you just got to get past the first 100 pages. And I remember at one point, I'm on page 101. And I'm like, what am I missing? <laughs> I'm not getting it. Right. So, okay. And there are different reasons for readings. If the, yeah. if the prose is really, really rich, there's lots of classics that not yeah. that much happens in that people read them because the, the characters are interesting. Maybe they're not even trying to do much, but they're just yeah. interesting. And the prose is so well done that you you still find it satisfying yeah um, but i tell plot driven stories so for me i want to get that plot going pretty darn quick <laughs> yeah yeah so speaking of humor in the tangled stars there's humor there's corruption there's action coop is in the thick of this and like you said he's a bit of, he's a scavenger um he makes mistakes like he's like for me, it's like he's human, you know, and he's trying to survive and he doesn't take himself too seriously. Is it is that how you imagined him or think of him or how he's your character, your, your guy? What do you think? Um, I don't know. He just developed. I, I knew what he was. And so right from the beginning, he had a certain voice and it is written his scenes not all the scenes. It's it's a bit weird. This is like the second or third time now. Uh, actually, the fourth book I've done, although the, the previous three books, my World Shapers books, are in a completely different kind of universe. But they have the same kind of structure in that it's a mixture of uh, first person for some characters and third person for some characters. Uh, but all of Coop's um, sections are written in first person. And as soon as you do that, and you start saying, I, 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 the the character starts to develop in a certain way and he has a very distinctive voice. Um, and uh, I 
and as I thought about his background and and all of that, because you know he's an orphan, he grew up in a he grew up in a religious orphanage for a while, which didn't really take. Yeah. <laughs> and then he was in like a state orphanage, and uh, yeah, he had a he had a troubled upbringing, yeah. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> all those things just seem to play into the way that he would view the world, and he is a survivor. That's that's what he is. He's yeah. he's just found a way to make his way through the world and in through the the cracks of. Uh, he lives. The moon is is basically run by a crime lord. It has a government, but it's a pretty corrupt government. So he's in that kind of a milieu. So it's not surprising that he falls in with the the real powers, which are the the criminal elements. Um, and he just tries to find a way through the cracks and always trying to survive and and try to get to some place that's a little more stable than where he is right now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So please, for listeners. Um, can you explain what the masked <laughs> primus is? They got to hear this. Yeah. Well, when I'm developing an interstellar civilization, yeah. you always have to have some way to, to get around the faster than light barrier. And as I said, my first short story was called Castor Glass Hypership Test Pilot. So hyperspace has been around for a long time in the field. That's one way to do it. Warp drives, all that kind of thing. Uh, the other one has typically been wormholes. I didn't want to just use a wormhole because everybody does wormholes. So, and I've I've done various things. So, just basically out of thin air, I and I was also looking for a cool acronym. Yeah. So, I came up with the multiverse adjacent space time tunnels. Yeah. And if you if you uh, accept the the multiple universe hypothesis, the idea that there's an infinite number of universes side by side, and every time the something happens in in this universe that could have gone another way, you split off another universe. So there's an infinite number of these. They're all basically side by side. I said, well, okay, why can't you go into the non-existent space between those universes and then pop into another universe where, and back into your universe wherever it is you want to be? And so multiverse adjacent space-time tunnels, masks. So Mast Primus is the, the, was the first one of these that was opened when uh, the when Earth people, well, really their their AIs figured out how to do it, um, and uh, and that's where this station was that was to stabilize the end, and then New Earth was the first thing they found on the other side of that. And so when this opens again, my characters are hoping that they can go back through it and get to New Earth and out of old Earth system, and hoping that New Earth system they can maybe make their fortune or or something. Anyway, they'll get away from their problems here and find hopefully. Yeah. things better on the other side yeah. of the mast well i'd rather go through a mast than go through a wormhole to tell you the truth <laughs> okay <laughs> doesn't sound quite as as although um the the process of traversing one makes people violently ill so it's not particularly <laughs> a pleasant sensation yeah yeah so like, like i said in the world you create um there's these multiple governments you have a shaky, you know, shaky de- democracies, dictatorships, like the, the, the crime, the crime lords. Yeah, I feel grounded in Earth. So that's kind of scary. Okay. <laughs> I guess what I'm trying to say is, because you mentioned you have old Earth and you have new Earth and then there's space. And I felt I had something I could, uh, for lack of a better word, say I could grab onto. Okay. Um, something familiar okay old earth you know and um so do you think with science fiction and like i say um your science fiction fans i'm a newbie here do you think if the reader can grasp on to 
an aspect of the science fiction, whether it's just something like Old Earth, that, you know, you are connecting them to ride through with that story. I think that's very important. You have to have something that you can relate to to take you in. And it's the same in fantasy. You have to have in some way something you can relate to that will carry you through all the fantastical stuff that's happening. Now, experienced science fiction readers are more willing to plunge themselves into something that seems completely out there and maybe doesn't have much of an anchor yeah. uh, because part of the fun of reading uh, some kinds of science fiction is being plunged into this world and trying to make sense out of it without anything anchoring it to the to the here and now. And there are very successful stories like that. But um, if you want to carry along more readers or introduce them to the genre, or you want them to you know, come to your books from being a non-science fiction reader, which yeah. I would always like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it is that that idea that there's something that you can grasp onto. And basically, the, even in the most out there stuff, as long as there's human beings, in it, the really out there stuff, there's not even any human beings. Yeah. So, you know, but if there are human beings, human beings are not going to change significantly in the way they think um, than they have, you know, we we can still understand Shakespeare from 500 years ago. We can understand the Greek myths from much longer ago than that, or the Bible. Human nature is still recognizably human nature. So if you have people acting like real human beings, yeah. even though their things that are going on around them are completely wild and in uh, a whole different culture and a whole different technology level and all those sorts of things, you still got that human being you can relate to, or in this case, a cat as well. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I'm thinking, like, there is, there's humor in this novel, you know, like, did you, I know I'm, I'm kind of going off again, but you're, you're talking about human beings, and I'm thinking about Coop, there's humor in it. It's subtle, you know, like, it's not like Monty Python or anything like that, but it's, it's funny, right? Like, did you, did you plan that? Or did that just come out? Well, I knew I wanted it to be a lighthearted adventure, so there was going to be humor in there. As it happens, those three books I just came yeah. out before this, the World Shapers books, also have a lot of humor in them. Yeah. And they're also first person. I think whenever I write in first person, it tends to be my okay. my uh, sense of humor tends to come through more. Yeah. But I always like some humor. And, you know, going back to Shakespeare, he wrote ter terrible tragedies, but they had humor in them as well. Uh, and, you know, the things that happen in the book, all, horrible things happen over the course of the story to various people. And yeah. uh, but. Um, yeah. But still, the characters and their dialogue has that kind of bantering uh, kind of back and forth that has always appealed to me in things like, uh, you know, Buffy the Vampire Slayer yeah. or, or shows like that. And it's yeah. just it was something that I I knew that was the tone I wanted for this book. And so I let it happen. Good. Not that I forced it to happen. Oh. I just let myself go and let it yeah. happen. Yeah. Well, that cat. God. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I have, I know some of my listeners and they have cats and I'm just saying people. Okay. So in the plotting of the Tangled Star, stars, I'm sorry, the Tangled Stars or any of your science fiction novels, do you take current events and adapt them for science fiction. Um, I guess I'm just kind of wondering how you get some of your ideas because, you know, we're hearing so much now about the shortage of these chips in cars, right? And our car, our lots, the, the dealerships are like half full, you know? So I thought, well, geez, well, couldn't you do something like that with science fiction? You know, you have a, a shortage of chips, let's say you need for 
um, a rocket or, you know, I'm seeing on the news, they're getting ready to, in the US, to go to the moon, right? So do you take, like, I'm wondering where you get your inspirations from. Like, do you take things you see in current life and think, hey, what if? What if is the classic, one of the two classic ways to generate a science fiction idea. Okay. What if is particularly useful for fantasy as well. Yeah. You know, what if, whatever. And the other is if this goes on, where you look at a trend and you project it into the future. Okay. Uh, far future science fiction, there's less of the, if this goes on, that's often a near future speculation of some sort. But yeah, everything is, an, everything feeds into it. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, I don't know that I'm looking at anything specific. And of course, when I wrote the book, it was the first draft was probably two years ago yeah. when I was writing it, maybe three when I was writing, the, at least started it. Um, and uh, so it, at this point, it's hard to know what was going through my head as I was writing it. But in general, everything and I read a lot and I follow science and I follow the news and all that kind of stuff and people and various things. And it all kind of goes into that uh, mixing pot in your head yeah. and you pull out threads as you need them and weave them together <laughs> yeah that's a good that's that i like that i like that example yeah next metaphor mixing pot and threads uh would, but no I, I i get what you mean though you just it's kind of all gets in there and <laughs> ah, okay now your characters they're believable the dialogue is so easy to read and um i i know i'm doing rewrites and i'm reading my book out loud and i i came across some dialogue and my tongue was just twisting and it's just like oh god joe you gotta work on this right so um like i say your characters are believable sorry um someone's rang the doorbell i'm not answering it so you may hear my dogs get a little bit upset okay? <laughs> so your characters are believable you have like i say the dialogue is so easy to read. And I'm thinking of between, now I'm going to ask you, is it pronounced Liza or Liza? It's Liza in my head. Okay. Liza and Cooper. Um, like, I'm just, if you don't mind, I'm not even going to explain it. If I could just read this dialogue. Because it, <laughs> it says everything. Okay. So this is a conversation between Liza and Cooper. I happen to know Anderson Kane would pay anything to own a Van Gogh, I said, specifically the self-portrait where he's missing an ear. I heard it reminds Kane of someone he tortured as a young man. Boom. So there we got it. We immediately, we know what Kane is like, Anderson Kane. you know, that and I was telling, again, when my daughter and I were talking about books last night, I was telling her this dialogue. I said, you know, you immediately know what Anderson Cain is like because of why he wants this Van Gogh painting. Hey, okay? Yeah. <laughs> any any <laughs> thoughts, anything you'd like to add to that or? That stuff, you know, it, it's always weird when you, because the process of writing, especially after, you know, all these, all these books. Yeah. You know you wrote it, and it, it, but it it flows out of your fingers as you're writing it, and it just happens. Something. Yeah. So that line, I don't remember. You know, it wasn't like I planned it. Um, I, 
I mentioned Van Gogh, I immediately thought of the missing year and I, and that came out. So that sort of thing, I think a lot of it comes down to practice, really. The more you write, the more, the easier it becomes to write. Um, And uh, I, I recently, I actually read the Tangled Stars out loud as you were talking about, because it's a great way to find typos that got missed by the copy editor and everybody else. And sure enough, I found some yeah. and a, a few things like that, which hopefully will get corrected before the book comes out. Um, but, you know, I'm reading it out loud. It's been a while since I wrote it. And although I know I wrote it and I know what's going to happen, I don't know what lines are coming next because yeah. uh, it's it, they came out and they went on the page and then they're kind of gone out of my head again. Yeah. Um it, it's very interesting writing and and the way that it works and the level at which it works is not entirely a conscious level of creation at all. Uh, it's something pathways you've built in your brain that make these things, those threads <laughs> tie together and then come out in words on the page. So do you ever, I'm wondering, there are times I've, I've found with myself and when I when I've been in um, doing writing with my critique partner, and there are times when I remember one time with my critique partner, I was reading something of of hers, and it's just like you say, Van Gogh, this painting. And do you ever sometimes feel that as you're writing, it's like, okay, I know I've got something, I've got something with this, and it's almost it's not like you're reaching for it, but it's almost like you know in the back of your brain that. I've got something. I, I can make something really good with this. Does that ever happen to you? I'm like, I think yes. Uh, I think also what happens is that you keep if you keep moving forward and you get some semblance of the idea on the page. Yeah. For me, at least, uh, then when I come back over it in revision, I will sometimes be able to polish that up and make that thing that was half baked more fully baked yeah. in that particular spot. I just finished a short story today, in fact. Uh, for the anthology Shapers of Worlds Volume 3, the third one I started featuring guests in my podcast. Yeah. And uh, it was it was a bit like that. I, I started writing it. I kind of knew the overarching story. And I knew... I, I threw a little Shakespeare in at the beginning. And by the time I finished it and was revising it, I realized that I could make that and bring it back again at the end. And it made a nice flow to the story and so the idea was kind of there at the beginning yeah and then when i did the revision i realized that i could sharpen that connection and make it a nice concluding bit so it opens with a bit of shakespeare and it kind of ends with a little bit more of that same soliloquy and it works out really well to shape the story so a lot of that you have a kind of a half-baked idea and then as you continue to work on it you can can make it fully baked excellent excellent okay some Last few fun questions here. I could have Googled this, but I thought, I know I don't want to. I want want to hear his answer. (laughs) Okay. So, so Ed, is there really an Armstrong ale made by Neil Armstrong? No, there is not. (laughs) Okay, too bad. (laughs) It's totally in the book. It's a, it's a lunar brew pub that taking advantage of the fact that most people don't know history. And so, yeah, yeah. And Armstrong, he brewed this aboard Apollo 11 on his way to the moon. No, they were not brewing beer on board Apollo 11 on the way to the moon, but if you add far enough in the future, you know, just like history gets tangled and mangled all the time in, in advertising and popular culture all the time. Yeah. 
people might believe it and it would be a good advertising slogan. So. Well, it was when I was reading, I thought, this is cool. Uh, <laughs> I wonder if it's real. And then I thought, no, I'm going to ask it. I don't. Okay, yeah. Okay. Okay. So the next question I have, what do you believe is the biggest mis- misconception, if I could say the word correctly, what is the biggest misconception about science fiction novels? I think it's that science fiction is about predicting the future. Science fiction isn't about predicting the future. It has occasionally managed to hit something with yeah. some accuracy, like uh, there's the famous example during the Second World War when the physics was out there for the atomic bomb, and there were science fiction writers who realized that, and they put something about nuclear reactors or or atomic bombs into short stories while the Manhattan Project was still top, top secret, and they got visited by the FBI because, you know, they wanted to. So that's a famous example. And there's a few other things like that. But it's not about predicting the future. What it really is about is is telling you that the future and science fiction is is broad enough. There is actually science fiction that's not set in the future. But in general, it is that the future will be different from from now. Okay. Uh, it's an inoculation against future shock, I guess. So if you read science fiction, um, you may not read accurate predictions of what's going to happen. But when things happen, you may think, oh, that's a bit like that story. Or or, or often what I see in science now is that, oh, uh, something will come out in the news. And I, well, science fiction writers have been talking about that possibility for years. Wow. Uh, so I think that's the, that's what I would say. It's it's not about predicting the future. It's It's just about imagining the future and how it might be different from today without saying this is how it's going to be. And it, it can also serve as a warning, as yeah. in, we don't want the future to be what it might be like if we don't take different actions now. Yeah. Okay. So now you've just, uh, something's clicked with me. I have this incredible rough, rough first draft. And I keep saying it's a, it's a parallel universe. So it's not, it's not fantasy at all. Okay. Um, and now I think of fantasy in terms of like Game of Thrones, um, Harry Potter, Okay, so it's a parallel universe. There's some time travel. So that's not that's that'd be science fiction. I suppose I would say that it's science fiction if it has a scientific underpinning, as okay. in this this could happen in our world given some things perhaps we don't know about in the way that the natural world works, but it's all natural law. Okay. If they're time traveling by rubbing a magic ring no. and a genie grants <laughs> a wish, then it's fantasy. So you've got yeah. That's whole magical. You don't have to explain it in or you know, like my masks, right? Yeah. I wave my hands and look, we've got interstellar travel. It's really fantasy. Yeah. But it's framed in such a way that, or, and it goes back to Arthur C. Clarke's famous law that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. But in science fiction, you treat that as technology, and in fantasy, you treat that as magic, even though they may be doing the same things. So if it's because you you do have a scientific underpinning for parallel universes and time travel is probably impossible but that's not the same thing as being entirely certain it's impossible and it's certainly time travel actually gets kind of a pass in science fiction because it's been used as a trope since hg wells okay so i would say if it's parallel universes and involves time travel assuming there's a technological basis for that or that or or something that's framed that way i would call it science fiction okay because I know I was looking up um, Einstein 
and the possibility of time travel. And I'll never forget. It was great. There was this, di- this diagram of man in a train. And they were talking about speed. And so, okay, it is based. It's not based on rings or, or okay. Yeah, okay, good. Thank you. I was just, I was curious. Okay. So what did you read? What did you read when you grew up? Did you read science? Yeah, obviously. Did you read science fiction? Or is, am I making an assumption here? No, no, I was a huge science fiction reader. My my I two older brothers, they read science fiction somewhere here. Is it up here? I have a couple of them, like I, I can show you. Uh yeah. called The Forgotten Door. It's a very old science fiction novel that belonged to my brother yeah. about a, a young man from a another world that falls through a portal into our world. Oh, wow. Somewhere here I have one called Revolt on Alpha C, which was Robert Silverberg's first science fiction novel he wrote when he was 19 and uh, all of the Heinlein, they were called juveniles. They were basically young adult novels. And I wrote, so I was reading Isaac Asimov and Robert A. Heinlein and Andre Norton, Robert Silverberg, everybody that was writing in the fifties because I was born in 1959. So I started reading in the sixties, but all that stuff from the forties and fifties was still around. So all the golden age of science fiction, it was called. And then I've, I've just kept on. So. <laughs> but those, you know, they were called the big three at the time. Isaac Asimov, Robert A. Heinlein, and uh, Arthur C. Clarke. Okay. I certainly read all of those. Okay. Andrew Norton, Robert Silverberg, some of those other early early writers. And then later on, people like Joe Haldeman. And um, yeah, lots and lots. So how do you think the novels have changed have or have they changed over time? Well, well obviously, they've. Cha- I, would th- I would think they have changed because our times have changed. So... Thinking about what you said, that science fiction is not about predicting the future. I would think science fiction our science fiction novels have changed because it's supposed to reflect how our times have changed. Do you I think well, one of the biggest changes is at that time, yeah, I mean, the first science fiction novel, I believe that was published by a major publisher was by Isaac Asimov, and that was in the late fifties. Um, Pebble in the Sky. Oh wow! Which was about a robot detective on a on a moon. Um, I think I'm getting that right. (laughs) You'd be a great partner to have on Pictionary. Okay, right? Okay, sorry. (laughs) Um, So you know that science fiction novels are actually a fairly recent development. So there was a time when, when I was a kid, you probably still could have literally read everything that was published by any sort of major publisher. And of course, at the time, there weren't much non-major publishers. You didn't yeah. have what we have now. Now you can't do that. Science fiction has exploded. There's you know hundreds of thousands of books published every year in every imaginable subgenre, um, every niche. So I don't think you can say how science fiction has changed because there's so much more of it that okay. you can still find stories. I mean, my star song, my, my young adult novel that was just shortlisted for the Aurora award uh, is very much a Robert A. Heinlein, Andre Norton era kind of story okay. could have been told by either of them. Yeah. Uh, and uh, at the same time, you can have stuff that's completely different, experimental. I would say there's perhaps in what's published by the major publishers, some publishers, because different publishers have different focus. Yeah. Uh, there's perhaps more of the uh, so-called literary graces, uh, you know, deep characterization, and beautiful sentences and all of that. But at the same time, there's straight ahead uh, plot driven fiction and everything in between. So I think 
how has it changed? There's just yeah. so much more of it yeah. that you can find every variation of it you might be interested in. You can find somebody writing that. Okay, cool. Well, that was that was okay. Cool. Okay. Last question. You are on Luna. You have the chance to go back to old Earth and obtain one thing. What would it be? Well, that begs a lot of questions. Like, do I have everything I need to survive ah. on Luna? Uh, do I have my cat? Because if my cat was on the Earth, I'd probably get him. Aww. <laughs> oh. I know. I'm assuming my wife is here, too. You know, so. <laughs> Yeah, that's good, 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 good answer. Yes. <laughs> if it were just one, you know, thing of human civilization that I would like to preserve, yeah. and if I didn't get it, it would be lost forever. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't think it'd be a book because that would all be digitized and would be available everywhere. It might be a work of art. Okay. Yeah, that's a tough one. Okay. Okay. Well, good. And I think, I think that's what it would boil down to is, if it was a person yeah. or you know, that I was separated from, then by all means, and everything else could, I don't care. Yeah. That's probably when you'd say, if, okay, so if it was me, I think I, if, <laughs> if my husband and my dogs were left on old earth, I think I'd say to the husband, you get one dog, I get the other, let's go. <laughs> you know? So we got, we got everything covered. Okay, so and what's next? What 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 do you have on your plate? What's coming up next? Are you what are you working on next? Well, I'm very focused on my on the publishing side of my operation. Um, Shadow Paw Press, named after the cat, yeah, uh, is uh, has published quite a few books and is publishing more, not just science fiction, fantasy. Um, I started it with a short story collection of mine and my grandfather-in-law's First World War memoirs. And I was focused on republishing some of my work that had been abandoned by other publishers that went away. Yeah. Uh, and then now I'm publishing more books by other people, some of which are new editions of notable previously published work. And I've had a couple of poetry books. I've got some nonfiction essays coming up. I do have some science fiction fantasy I've published through that as well. Yeah. And then on the other side, I'm going to start publishing and have published some original uh, work by other authors. Oh. Uh, I mentioned the the anthologies. Uh, those grew out of my podcast where I interview other science fiction and fantasy authors about the creative process called The World Shapers. Yeah. And uh, I've kickstarted two of those so far, and I kickstarted a third one this year. So I'm working on that right now. As I said, I just finished a short story. That's my short story called uh, The Thing in the Play is what it's called. I just finished that today. Nice. And that book will be out this fall. I have the two books I'm publishing. One is called The Amir's Falcon, which is a young adult uh, uh, outdoor adventure story by Matthew Hughes. And one is called Thickwood, which is a post-Second World War historical story set in Saskatchewan about a young woman who loves horses and just came back from playing in the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, a league of her own kind of stuff. So that's that's an interesting combination. Yeah. And so those are coming up. And I've actually been given a grant by the Saskatchewan Arts Board to write a nonfiction book, which will also come out of the podcast. Uh, I'm going to go back and write a book about what I have learned about the creative process of writing science fiction and fantasy, drawing on the 100 and as of yesterday, 117 interviews I've done. Um, so that that'll be my main focus over the next few months, because I need to get that done, at least some sort of draft of that by the end of the year. Uh, I don't have an and I on the novel side, I've got a middle grade novel that's out in there's a publisher interested in it. I'm just waiting to see if they're actually going to take it or not. 
and that's a fantasy novel and i'm currently working on a ya novel which uh, is on spec i don't have a publisher lined up for it but i'm i'm working on it wow okay <laughs> yeah you're busy <laughs> okay well ed it, this has been an honor thank you thank you very much well, thanks and for having me good and um i hope you have a good day and happy writing <laughs> thank you you too okay bye-bye bye, -bye. bye.